Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Leadership can be something as simple as staying calm and focused when the world around you is pure chaos. And if you can keep your team calm and focused in that moment, that can be the difference between life and death. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by BuildCorp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply love a good story, this podcast is for you. I first met today's guest, Curtis McGrath, at a business lunch a couple of years back. How many of those have you been to when the clinking of knives and forks followed by the growing volume of whispers is a pretty fair indication the guest speaker hasn't quite hit their mark? Not on this day. As Curtis told his story, I was worried my own breathing was too loud. The room of 500 was captivated. From the war in Afghanistan to Paralympic gold, if leadership is born in adversity, Curtis McGrath knows a thing or two. Pulling away from his nearest rival to take gold, Curtis McGrath, you star, world champion, and now a Paralympic gold medal. Curtis, thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. You should have been packing your bags for Germany this month, of course. The World Para Canoe Championships, just another sporting event to be cancelled. How are you feeling about all of that? Yeah, it's obviously a, uh, a bit of a curveball and, and not something that anyone has expected to, to happen. But, you know, in all, it's um, nice to actually be able to say that um, I'll be spending uh, a winter at home. And, and here on the Gold Coast, it's really... Uh, a nice place to be during this time of year, but um, obviously a little bit uh, disappointing with the, the distraction and, and the, uh, the unprecedented times that it is. It's, it's one of those things that you can never have imagined that this would have happened in, in the, the situation that's at hand. So um, thankfully I'm healthy and safe and um, yeah, it's all about looking on the positive side. Yeah, it's not a bad consolation prize, I guess, being on the Gold Coast. Um, how many World Championships uh, is it now that you've won and, and were you a, a shoe-in for this one? If I was to stand on top of the podium, uh, the, the World Champs that would have happened, it would have been my um, 11th uh, World Championship, but uh, it would have been my seventh year um, away uh, doing the sport. So uh, a, a pretty pretty good sort of stint, I think, and um, you know, one, one of those things that... Uh, I just have to wait until next year to see what happens. How do you stay hungry uh, during that that period of time? It's hard work year after year, and when you've clearly reached the the pinnacle of your sport, how do you stay hungry? Um, I guess I'm lucky because at the Tokyo Games, I've had an event added to my schedule. So that means that I'll have the opportunity for two uh, medals. And I think that that little... 
um, carrot being dangled out in front, uh, the opportunity to stand on the podium twice is, is what's kept me hungry. And, you know, I did very well in Rio and, and came away with the gold, but at the same time, it, uh, there's always something to improve on. And I think, uh, you wouldn't be an elite athlete if you weren't looking for those improvement points. All right. We're going to talk uh, a bit more about Rio and and obviously um, what you're hoping for in Japan next year. But let's talk about the path that led you to being an elite uh, Paralympic athlete. Um, It began in uh, 2012, August 23, 2012. Where were you? What were you doing? I was uh, deployed to Afghanistan uh, with the Australian Army, uh, serving as a combat engineer. And the, the role in Afghanistan for an engineer is to provide mobility, so searching the way forward and looking for the improvised explosive devices or IEDs in the roads. So a very dangerous role, um, but a very uh, critical role to the mobility of, of the rest of the deployment, but also the safety and the future of, of the people of Afghanistan. So clearing away those IEDs, meaning that uh, people could fr- move about freely without the, the fear of stepping on something that's hidden in the ground. So um, obviously looking for those things where you don't know where they are is, is a, a very difficult thing, but um, it's uh, part, of the, part of that job and, and someone's got to do it. And, um, and we were very well trained and um, kind of ready for uh, that, that deployment and that sort of scenario. So um, on the 23rd of August uh, 2012, I was on a deployment and uh, on a patrol uh, clearing a, a, an unoccupied checkpoint so that the insurgents had pushed out the police force that were occupying this checkpoint about two months ago and then laid a heap of IEDs in the ground. And it was our job to go back in and uh, clear all these IEDs out. On the 23rd, it was about three days or four days into the, the patrol, the five-day patrol, and um, we were given uh, approval to explosively remove a very large boulder that was blocking the access uh, to the, the checkpoint. Um, so we were sort of reconning how we were going to do that. And um, due to the fatigue and the conditions there, I, I got a little bit confused and, and went to a different different rock in a different area, which is all safe because we'd been using that, that path and everything. But... Um, my mate Pitch came over and, and got me and said, uh, mate, you're at the wrong rock. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course, I should have, should be, should have known. So I um, bundled up my, uh, my gear and, and started walking along the track, and, and uh, that's when it happened. And I uh, had stepped on an IED that was uh, hidden in the ground on a path that I had actually searched over uh, the day before. So... Um, a pretty traumatic explosion happened. Um, it was one of those things that uh, was never expected, but always planned for, if that makes sense. Um, and uh, it detonated both beneath me and immediately took both my legs. Um, I don't remember the blast. I don't remember my rifle being snapped in half. I don't remember my metal detector being obliterated, nothing. I just, what I re- remember is um, sort of, opening my eyes from the flat of my back, looking up at the sky and um, seeing that um, there was rocks and debris and everything still falling from the sky and a little bit dazed to confuse. And I sort of get up on my elbows and survey and look around and I can see what's happened. I can see the blast crater next to me, the blood coming out of my legs and obviously my, uh, my legs missing. And um, yeah, so a, a pretty traumatic um, experience. Um, but at the same time, um, I was was quite composed um, despite the pain. Uh, I was also the combat first aider for my team, so an unofficial medic. 
and I was um, trying to instruct the guys through the, the process of treating the initial first aid until um, Lance Corporal Court came by and he, he started to take over the, uh, the, the first aid response and, um, you know, talking them through IV fluids and morphine and um, quite a bit of a process um, to, to, to you know, save a life in that situation. Um, it's a very pr- uh, critical process that requires a lot of um, uh, physical um, uh, intervention, you know, tourniquets and things that are quite tight and hard and, and, and strong um, and, and lots of, uh, you know, bandages and um, you know, IV fluids and all that sort of thing. It it's all happens very quickly. So, um, you know, thankfully I was conscious through the, th- the whole thing and, and I'm very grateful for that because I can remember what people were doing for me and, and how they reacted. So, um, and as you know, this podcast is about leadership, but uh, in those moments, I guess that is an element of leadership. You had to, even though you were the injured one, you had to take control there. Yeah, that's right. It's um, something that uh, is forced upon you. So it's not something that you, you'd had by choice. So um, I knew I was in a pretty pretty bad way and so did everyone around me. So they were very... Um, uh, critical and content taking direction from me. Um, and I think, um, you know, like I said, I was very grateful to, to, to watch them and, and see them do what they did for me and, and um, you know, trying to talk them through things. Um, and, it, and it's weird because, you know, you, you train, I, currently I train and train and train and, and I understand the application of the training in order to uh, produce a performance but in this situation, you can never replicate the real thing in in a first aid scenario, and it would be very unlikely that that would happen as in a training arena. So when this event happens and someone requires to show their training through an actual scenario, a real life scenario, it is um, something that's it's it's quite a weird feeling to to have that training show when you've never actually used it in real life. So it's quite a, a, a very interesting experience. Yeah. So, but as I understand it, you were identified as a leader, I think on your first deployment um, with the Army in East Timor, you were part of a, a leadership program and you topped the class in that. Was there anything though that, that you, you learnt during that period that, um, that you drew on in that moment uh, in, in Afghanistan in 2012? Interpersonal skills, I think, and, and communication skills is, is, is probably the catalyst and the, the, the largest part of being a leader because without the communication skills, you can't exactly get people to do uh, what, what you would like. And, and I think that's a really important thing to learn, uh, especially in the military. And the way we communicate is very direct, and very sort of methodical. Um, and in a first aid scenario, it is methodical because that's the way in which we've learned how to, to treat the situation. So, and that's one of those things that you you develop over time, and and you start to get to know how people will take that communication. And you you know, I'd been in Afghanistan for three months um, when I got injured, so I, I knew the guys around me very well and very intimately, and it was very uh, sort of seamless. So I would give instruction, they would do it, and. You know, I wasn't the the, um, the the patrol commander. I wasn't the brick commander, which was the, the next level down. Um, I was just the soldier on the ground, the, the second in charge of my little team, which was only a four 
four-man team and for, for me to instruct other people that were higher ranking than me and them to do it, they understood that in this scenario, I'm the leader of that, that scenario. And, you know, you're relying on people, whichever sort of scenario or even industry you're in, the business, you need to make sure that you uh, respect the intelligence and the specialty of other people uh, when they're dealing with the scenario in which they've trained for. So, you know, first aid is a very um, specific scenario and, and so is fighting a fire. So, you know, I'd step back and let the firefighter do it. So it's just that you know, understanding of where, where that uh, specialty sort of comes into play. Was there a moment, as you say, you'd gone to the wrong rock, um, then you'd stepped into an area that you'd cleared the day before. So there was, I guess, some responsibility for your accident rested on your shoulders. Uh, did you have a moment there and then to be filthy with yourself or was it all about process? Um, no, not, not at that. I think the feeling of relief that it was me that got hurt was a hindsight thing. Um, you know, the, this, the, the critical situation that was happening there on the ground with me bleeding out and the requirement for me to focus on the task at hand was was 100%. So for me to think about other aspects of, of what could have happened and what who did what and where I was and why it happened, that, that definitely comes later. And that is a very important part of um, managing mistakes and, and improving upon them. And, you know, obviously missing an IED is a pretty serious mistake, but you know, the insurgents there are not stupid. They're not dumb. They're not, um, you know, you can't just... Um, fob them off that they are a serious contender and, and very very highly skilled and um, the, the person making the IDs and, and then the person laying them so there's a number of different assets that um, create that scenario but at the same time um, you know it wasn't until much later that I uh, sort of come to terms with what had happened who whose sort of fault it was um, it, and, and going through that process it didn't make me angry it didn't make me um, resent or regret my decisions but at the same time it made me think about you know um what what would have happened if it wasn't me that got hurt and how would that have made me feel i think um for me um that was a a defining moment in in my my acceptance of what happened to me and and, you know i was quite content and quite happy that it was me that got hurt and not someone else. Have you had, and I know that, you know, you've kept in touch with these guys, the guys who helped you, your fellow soldiers. Um, at any stage, have you sat down and talked about what they were feeling at the time? Because, you know, you've, you're have you obviously going through a physical trauma. They would have been going through some sort of trauma of their own. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, obviously. And, and, you know, I was quite aware of, of their trauma, um, not, not to like individualize it but you know as a generalization they're, they're going through a similar trauma as what i am maybe not feeling the pain but you know that the emotional trauma of it all and that that can somewhat be more damaging than you know breaking an arm or losing a leg it it, it um, can be crippling and send you down a very dark hole in which you know, most people are aware of you know mental health issues and, and that can be you know somewhat life-ending and um yeah, i you know, try try my best to keep in touch with them as best I can, and um, it's it's important to do that. But um, I don't really sit down with them and talk in depth about their you know, feelings. I, I guess it's it's probably not a 
uh, we probably should do it a little bit more. It's not a not a male thing to do, uh, unfortunately. And and um, you know, I think if we're able to, to check up on each other and, and ask how they're going as as a sort of a general generalization, I think it is you know, uh, hoping that that they will have feel comfortable with with speaking up if they've got any issues. How long did you have to wait then for the chopper to arrive to get you out of there? Yeah, so the, the chopper process was obviously a, a fairly lengthy one. Um, I had to fly from Tarrant which was about a 45-minute flight from where I was sort of laying on the ground. And um, it, it was quite some time because of the distance um, we were away from Tarrant and and that's just due to the, the environment and the landscape and the geography of the joint uh, of Afghanistan. So bit of a wait. Um, whilst the guys um, were carrying me along uh, in the, on the stretcher, to where the helicopter was going to land, um, I, I knew my legs weren't coming back. I knew that you know, my, I didn't really know, but I, I knew that my, my life has now changed in what way I don't, didn't really know. And I could tell that the guys were going through that trauma like we just talked about. And we, you got to think about the, the year, it was 2012, the London Olympics had just wound up. And the London Paralympics were just about to start. I think they were starting like on the 24th or 25th. And I could be wrong on that day. But we would go out and patrol and come back and, and watch the Olympics on TV and, and saw the promotion for the, the Paralympics coming up. And we're like, yeah, this would be good. And there was um, some pretty uh, inspirational adverts that Channel 4 over in the UK developed. And it was, you know, very inspirational. And, uh, you know, seeing people do things that, you know, without limbs or without vision or without hearing and you know, seeing these people get through um, these, these sporting events was pretty cool. And, you know, I, like I said, I knew my legs weren't coming back, but um, I, I sort of made a little bit of a, a comment to the guys that you, you guys will see me in the Paralympics. I'll, I'll be fine guys. You go, I'll be fine. I, I'll just go to the Paralympics. And you know, I, I actually said, you, you guys will see me in the Paralympics. It won't be in the green and gold, it'll be in the black and white. And, um, being a Kiwi, it's a, it's a bit of a sporting rivalry there, as you would know. And um, the, the guys, you know, jokes, you know, um, oh, I suppose you can walk to the chopper then as they're carrying <laughs> So a bit of a joke and, and you know, using humour as a way to get over trauma is, you know, um, I wouldn't say it's uniquely Australian, but at the same time, it's, it's a great way to get um, or to deal with a traumatic experience. Uh, yes, it should it should also be mentioned that you are an All Blacks fan, so we'll we'll attempt to forgive that. So there's a mixture there, though, isn't there, of of black humour that you're using to get through that experience, but also that statement proved to be so prophetic. Yeah, yeah, and like you know, me getting carried on the stretcher, and it, I didn't know how that was going to play out. I didn't know what sport or team, or even if it, I was even keen on sport after being such an active person and and then losing your legs you you really do get a different perspective on what is hard and what is you know what is possible and and I'm I'm sure that whatever I wanted to do I would be able to do it but there's definitely challenges that are related to those those opportunities so um I saw that you know I was now a disabled person. I was now a person that would need prosthetics and driving modifications and wheelchairs just to have a normal life. And that that was obviously very difficult to process. But at the same time, um, I needed to find something that gave me meaning and purpose. And I think sport was something that I was drawn to sort of immediately. About six months after I got hurt, 
I went over to the US and, and competed in what they call the Marine Trial Games, which is a little bit like the, the Invictus Games. And um, it's a, just a sort of a precursor event onto the Wounded Warrior Games, which the Invictus Games is based off. So um, similar that to, to all that, Americans, French, you know, um, Netherlands are all competing and doing swimming and I did wheelchair basketball and archery and sort of was drawn to the, the competitiveness of it. And I found that by doing the sport as well, it, you know, it was, it was good for my mental health and it gave me a purpose. And, and so I started to, to, to look towards uh, where, uh, what sport I could do and, and, and which country I would represent. Yes. And uh, you made the right choice there. Um, just quickly uh, back to that chopper ride on the mm-hmm. chopper you almost bled out. I mean, just how close were you to, to passing away on that chopper ride? If my mate Pitch, who was just behind me when I got hurt, took another 30 seconds to get the tourniquets on, I, I wouldn't have been there. So um, by him being as fast as he was to apply those tourniquets, uh, that gave me you know, another 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30, maybe even an hour more life before I could, you know, get treated by a hospital and get blood products because by the time I had left um, Tarrancourt Hospital and I was flying around to a, a few different hospitals, um, I'd been given 27 units of blood and that's about, I think it's like six and a half litres or something. So that's more the blood than, than what is generally in your body um, and obviously, uh, you know, with surgery and all that sort of stuff, a bit of blood products gets, gets, gets um, let out. So... Um, it's a, it's quite quite a substantial amount, and, and you know, I was very I did pass out in the helicopter, which which means I was very close. So yeah, very close that day. Uh, and I'm sure you've reflected on this that that the day, the incident, um, the way you reacted, what you had to do. Did you find something out about yourself that day that maybe that morning you didn't know? Looking back now, um, I think that I'm far more goal-orientated than I ever thought I was before that incident. Um, setting a goal and, and, and having something to strive towards is, wasn't something that I would you know, es- establish in my mindset and my processes to, to achieve things or um, get up in the morning, I guess. And having gone through my rehabilitation and, and sport and everything, it has now... Uh, showing me that having goals is, is very important to my lifestyle and, and what I what I do and how, how I think. So throughout the, the rehab, um, and obviously there would have been numerous. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Medical procedures, and I know that the fitting of the prosthetics is not a a simple exercise either. What are your memories of of that time before you're actually, you know, back on the legs and and moving towards your goals? Um, yeah, it was it was a long process. I spent three months in hospital before I was ready to to get on prosthetics. Um, so I was about ninety. I, 
almost exactly the same weight now. I'm about 92 kilos when I got hurt. Um, I was extremely fit. Uh, working, you know, three, four thousand meters above sea level is, you know, quite demanding on the body. So you get pretty, you adapt to that pretty well. Um, the my main goal in hospital was to get the strength back because I dropped down to about sixty kilos in hospital. I, I was um, wasting away due to my body using everything it had to heal itself. It was sort of an overdrive. And the trauma surgeon said to me that I was probably doing about the equivalent of a marathon a day. And that um, meant that obviously I was very hot. I was consuming a lot of energy and I wasn't eating probably as as many calories as what I needed to. I was very keen on on getting as strong as I could and and back up to about, you know, 75 kilos uh, just to just to be, you know, feel that I was strong enough. If I fell over, I could lift myself back up and move myself around, and um, that was that was the main thing. So, obviously, every day was was a little bit monotonous, um, but every day was small improvements. When I when I started in physio, I was doing about five ten minutes a day, and by the time I was ending in physio uh, ending in hospital, I was doing about eight hours a day. The, the, the good people at Greenslopes Private Hospital had turned my my room into pretty much like a physio clinic and sort of allowed me to, to do my physio all day, which was great. I imagine that you have to stay extremely positive throughout that time, but I also imagine that you would have had your dark days, your, your dark times. Can you take us into those moments and describe what that's what that's like? Yeah. Um, the, the darkest day I had in hospital was um, the day that I, the first day of, uh, I went to physio. But before I went to physio, it was my, the first time I had been able to myself physically onto, from the bed onto the wheelchair. And up until that point, when other people were involved, it sort of means that you're not independent and it's not a permanent thing in, in my life up until that point. So therefore, I felt like I was going to get better and, and then I'd be fine and then I, it wouldn't be as bad as what it could potentially be. But when I transferred onto the wheelchair, it was then and there that I realised that I was now a disabled person. I was now a person that required, you know, like I said, prosthetics, wheelchairs, driving modifications, just to get around and, and just to have a normal life. And it, it was a really, really difficult thing for me to process mentally. Um, I used to run you know, 10, 15 Ks every two days, you know, play a bit of sport as well and have that opportunity to do that was, in my mind, at that moment, taken away from me. That was really difficult and I, 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 you know, I broke down there and um, luckily my, my girlfriend at the time and my wife now, she was there with me and, and sort of comforted me in, in what way she could and um, it was a pretty tough thing to and it's hard to explain the that sudden realization what that feels like it's it, it you could almost put it into a, a case of when you i don't know if anyone's been in a car accident so i'm sure that a few people have but you know that instant when you realize that it's going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it and it's something that's you know going to disrupt your life quite significantly that day and you know, it might do for a couple of months and, and it might be a significant car crash, but it's in that process. And when you, you realize it's going to happen, it hasn't happened yet, but it's about to happen. It's that, that sinking feeling of, 
of uh, you know what I could have done differently or, or how am I going to deal with this? And, and it's um, it's a difficult uh, thing. You got the idea of becoming an elite sportsman. Um, what was it or or when was it that you really said, this is my life now, this is what I'm going to do? Um, I think it was when I, like I, I, I picked up the kayak and, and went and did a, uh, a, a bit of a trial with, with a, a coach down here on the Gold Coast. And um, I was at the time I was living up in Brisbane with my parents sort of regaining my my in, um independence and um in the trial with the coach she was like yeah all right i think we, we've got you know we've got something to work with here and um this is what's going to be potentially happening in, in the games and, and what this is what it'll look like so um she sort of laid out a path for me and and i could see it working and um so i sort of decided that all right this is this is what i'm going to be doing i'll, I'll move down to the gold coast and take this thing up full time and I was very very lucky because not many um, injured servicemen could make that decision um, as quickly as I did um, I was looking at only like like 18 months after I got hurt to taking this up full time and I was fully supported by my my uh, my unit in the army and in the defense force and that I think is a really important thing to note that you know, the people around me and, and even you know, that I was working for, they were able to see that this was going to benefit me both physically, mentally, and potentially financially. It was something that they were very, um, uh, they were very supportive of. I could see it sort of happening and, and see it being something that could be, um, I could succeed in. I think you've repaid them their faith and then some. So you, you've dominated the world scene as we talked about briefly. Um, and then, of course, the Rio Paralympics where you've realised that that gold, uh, that goal rather of uh, a gold medal. What did that mean to you and, and to your family and, and even to the guys that you were with in Afghanistan? That It's not just any old gold medal, right? There's something special about that gold medal. Yeah, so what I spoke about before was that, that I didn't feel any pressure um, and to, to get better or to have the goal or succeed in my sport or to show my family and friends that I was okay. And, it, and I really honestly didn't feel any pressure. But when I crossed the line in Rio, there was an expectation of from me that I would feel joy and happiness and excitement and, and um that I was that I had achieved the gold medal, and you know that's what you would expect when you you win um, the, the the best medal or the be the best in the world at something. But what feeling I got was this huge wave of relief, and that was the the pressure. I think that was the pressure showing itself that I'd said I was going to do all these things, and I went out and I did them and I achieved them, and I did it in front of them as well. And I was obviously proud of that but at the same time relieved that that I'd able to or I was able to do all that and, and come away and, and show them that I was still okay and that to me was sort of like this closing chapter on this attempt at making sure that they were okay as well. So if that was a um, an unspoken part of your drive you know for your family and, and for your mates yep. um 
Does that still exist second time round? Now, you know, obviously the, the games in Tokyo have been cancelled, but you'll get your opportunity next year. Is that still as strong, that, that drive, because you've already achieved that little part of it? Um, I think marginally, not nowhere near as much as last time. And I think um, there is probably more of an expectation for me to do well, mainly because I've always done quite well. And I think that's more, that is more obvious pressure to me. That, um, I, I, for example, I, I lined up at World Champs last year and I was the most nervous I've ever been in my life. And all I had to do at that World Championships was come in the top six. And I would have got what I'd got, what I'd gone to the World Championships for. And that was the Paralympic qualification. But I felt the pressure that I needed to win that race mm. in order to continue on in myself and my own goals. And I think that's when I started to realize that maybe I'm a little bit more invested in this mentally and emotionally than I thought I was. Um, and and leading into the Tokyo Games, I think that was more, it's going to be, you know, tapping on the back of my shoulder, you know, saying, hey, I'm still here. I'm still wanting to win. Let's let's do this. And um, I, I'm actually a little bit grateful that the Games have been postponed because it gives you a whole lot longer, like a whole year worth of preparation. And, you know, you can stay around at home and focus on those little core exercises and the the Pilates and, and fixing all the injuries and niggles that you had throughout the, because I didn't stop after Rio. I just kept going. And um, I, I slightly regret that not having a little bit of a break and that in order to allow my body to, to recover fully um, because, you know, being an elite athlete, you're always pushing your body 110%, always pushing it further and harder. And when you finally get that opportunity to take a bit of a breather like we are pretty much everyone is at the moment it's, it's quite refreshing see that's the difference between you and me so you're not sitting around having six meals a day and feeling like your first beer at four o'clock so that's what isolation does to some of us i, I didn't say i wasn't drinking <laughs> <laughs> um and what what happens now um b- between now and, and then when you do have that expectation but you've also got um opportunities to be uh, a leader as well and obviously heavily invested in the Invictus Games where you are an ambassador. You also uh, have a couple of mentoring opportunities that you're involved in. That's that leadership piece. What do you tell young people when you get the opportunity uh, about leadership? It's not always young people as well, I might add. It's, you know, sometimes it's, I, I speak to a lot of corporates and, and um, you know, they always ask the question, and like, would you go back and change what happened to you? that day in, in Afghanistan. And, and I always uh, answer the same way. And it's absolutely not. There's, there's so many opportunities in life that come from adversity that we forget about. We look at the adversity and we focus in and we tunnel in on it and think that that's going to be the worst day of our life. Yes, it might be. But beyond that, like people say, there's always, the grass is always greener on the other side. Once you get over that, that hill of adversity, there's going to be, great opportunities there and it might be a fork in the road moment that might go badly and having those opportunities to improve upon you know the mistake or the the failed challenge is something that needs to be reinforced as no one who has ever achieved anything has not failed before it it has to be sort of cemented into everyone's mental state and, and sort of focus that failure is 
necess- necessary for success. What makes a good leader? You know, you've probably had time to think about this because you would have worked under some good ones and, and some bad ones over the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, the military sort of has a, a sprinkling of all shapes and sizes and, and, and as with sport as well. But for me, um, I think leading by example, but knowing the people around you as well. And I, I, for me, I find a little bit uncomfortable coming in and trying to lead people that I don't know because then, uh, like I said at the beginning, that communication part starts to get a little bit, you know, you might be saying the wrong thing to this person and they might react a different way than what you you understand and you, you don't might not even know their, their skill or specialty. So I think um, having the ability to adapt and be flexible and but also have that that uh, uh that skill of, of good communication. So leading by example, and, and, you know, it's always good when you see the boss on the tools and, and having a go and um, contributing to the goal, um, both, you know, um, physically and, and emotionally. So it's not just about you do this and I'll do that and, and, and you do that and that, and just, you know, delegating a task. It's, it's about more than, than just telling people what to do. The Invictus Games must be very um, special to you obviously you know involved very early on and, and as i understand you've become quite close with prince harry <laughs> i wouldn't say close i didn't get an invite to his wedding or <laughs> new housewarming in california but um it's you know he, he's an amazing person that that is a bit of a champion for the, the wounded veterans and him being a veteran as well and understands what a lot of the guys have been going through and you know it, it's only just recently i think it was like yesterday that an article would come out. I don't know how true it is or whatnot, because you never know what you believe in when they write about Prince Harry, but he'd been struggling about not being able to um, be in the military about that camaraderie. And, um, you know, for him to say that it sort of resonates a lot with, with the servicemen and women, even, even, you know, just in general with, with your friends. And if you don't have that connection with them, they, you kind of feel a little bit lost and, and it's, it's quite a difficult, thing to do is transitioning from such an institution that, that relies heavily on teamwork and camaraderie. And for, for him to say that, it really cements to me that he's the right person uh, to promote the Invictus Games. And, and we're really lucky to have someone like him that's, that's in our corner. Um, do you still have to call him Your Royal Highness? <laughs> um, I don't know about the protocols anymore now that he's left the, the royal household, but um, yeah, I think it would Definitely be be sir at least, um, but uh, I have called him bro once before by accident. I, uh, it was just sort of a, a flowing comment, and, and it, I sort of caught myself right after it. And I was sort of looked around, and no one was looking at me. So thankfully, uh, no no one really worried about it. <laughs> I'd love to see the look on his face. Um, now let's talk a bit of rugby for a while. Obviously, um, the All Blacks they've dominated for a long time now uh are you going to you know continue to to back the winners here or will they get to a stage where you you win so many gold medals for australia that you might actually be able to bring yourself to to barrack for the wallabies at some stage i think um it would be impossible for me to not support the all blacks in some facet but um the all blacks are not the world champions so i'm not sure if you know that Mm, apparently (laughs) um yes and you know the best team won on on the day, and in that game against England, that was that was the case, and you know, they were just out strategized and, and out muscled, and um, it was it was a good game of rugby to see the All Blacks really 
choke in that moment. And, and I'm going to use that word because it's very work, thrown around a lot in the World Cup atmosphere for the All Blacks. But the, the Wallabies, you know, I think um, despite what's been going on in, in, in Rugby Australia and, and all that, you know, the other sagas that are related to it, um, Australia is nece- necessary for, for New Zealand to do well and, and vice versa. I think um, the Bledisloe Cup is something that's always been on the dartboard for the Wallabies. And uh, as much as I like to see the All Blacks win, I want to see the Wallabies win as well because um, it makes both the teams better. Agreed. Let's bring it all the way around now. Um, you've been right on the edge in a survival sense. Um, you've been right on the edge in terms of um, a high-performance scenario. Is there anything that scares you nowadays? I think um, not having um, opportunities to, to go on and, and do more things, whatever that may be. I think um, having opportunities to, to venture out and try new things and, and do go different places and meet new people is, is something that um, I've really enjoyed about my experience of rehabilitation and, and being an elite sports person, a public speaker and um, getting around it and talking to people about that. And, and if that was to be taken away from me or um, you know, losing something that um, we almost take for granted now, I think people are starting to realise that you know, going outside and having the free will to, to go down to the beach or if you're in Victoria, play golf, um, you know, just have that opportunity to, to, to do you know, what you like and, and what you enjoy. I think you're absolutely right. I think that the thought of... Uh, being locked up and and us losing freedom is something to be really fearful of. I think that's been shown in the last month or so. Um, You get to write your next chapter, uh, certainly in your Olympic career next year. What would going back-to-back mean for you to to win that gold again? So I spoke about the the addition of the the other event, the the Outrigger Canoe, um, which I've been world champion in since 2014. And for me to, to go to the Paralympics and have that opportunity to, to attempt to win that gold medal at the Paralympic Games, um, it's just so much the level of competition from the world champs to the Paralympics is like they just don't compare whatsoever. The, the, the atmosphere, the, the crowd, the, you know, the competitors, the, the, the location, Tokyo is going to be pretty amazing as well. And um, for me to, to continually do well all the, all the way through and I've actually been getting faster and faster and faster and I'm, I'm not sure if that's technology or boat or um, training or whatnot or even it could be the conditions and, and that's the way the sport is but having that that opportunity that like I said the carrot dangled in front of me it's, it's really really cool to have that opportunity so to hopefully stand on top of the podium for that um, would be amazing um, but also to defend that medal and everyone's getting so close now, it's getting more competitive. It's getting, you know, I can see people that are, are taking it you know, even more seriously in their training and, and pushing even harder. And, and that, that's making it more difficult for me. And, you know, you can't always be winners and the All Blacks will have to deal with that one day. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's just one of those things about sport and, you can never be on top of the podium forever and it's just the way it is. And that, uh, again, brings us back to one of the, the common themes and that is resilience, um, learning to deal with 
adversity. Do you think that's a, a great part of leadership as well and, and making people understand that? Yeah, definitely. And I think um, you know, one skill a, a leader sh- should or w- would be a nicety to have is, is someone who's gone through a difficult time and understands you know, what failure looks like, what that feels like and, and how to deal with it. And that can help other people deal with it better. And, and hopefully, you know, me having a chat to you and, and my public speaking and, and people hearing my story and who can learn what adversity in perspective can be and, and what, what, how to, and how to, to come you know, out of the other side with a successful mindset and, and a glass half, half full. Indeed. Uh, courage, resilience, determination. We all need a, a dose of those things at the moment. Curtis McGrath, you've got them all. Thanks for joining me on the Playmakers Playbook. Thanks, Nick. Cheers. The inspirational Curtis McGrath on this week's Playmakers Playbook. If you'd like to know more about Kurt's story, go to curtismcgrath.com.au. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify and Deezer. And make sure you don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, give us a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next week on the Playmakers Playbook. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.